As you've heard, we're working through a series on salvation. I noticed last week that our study books ran out. And so if you were trying to grab one of these, I think there are some more out in the foyer. Uh, but we're, we're looking at all of the different ways the Bible speaks of how God saves us, of what he does to save us. And today we come to the topic of regeneration. We're going to spend the bulk of our time in John chapter 3, but we'll also look in a few other different places. Um, let's pray. Let's ask God for help. Lord, we thank you that you are the God who takes what is dead and gives life to it. May we understand how amazing that is. May we be humbled. May we believe in Jesus. And may we live the new life that you've called us to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've heard Christians define themselves in lots of different ways. Some people do it by their denominations. So they say, I'm a Baptist or I'm an Anglican or I'm a Catholic or I'm a whatever. I've heard people describe themselves as nominal Christians or not a practicing Christian, which is a strange idea. But the idea that I think what people mean when they say that is that they believe that there's a God out there, but they don't go to church or read the Bible or pray or do the, do the Christian things. One way that people have described themselves is they call themselves a born-again Christian. And I don't know about you, but for many people that that conjures an image of an American very enthusiastic Christian. You know, the kind of person you hope is not sitting next to you on a plane. Uh, But a born-again Christian in terms of the Bible just means Christian. So there's no such thing in the Bible as a not-born-again Christian. That is, if you're born again, you're a Christian. If you're not born again, you're not a Christian. Being a born-again Christian is like saying, I'm a Christian that's a Christian. Now, the theological term for this is regeneration. It's the idea that God takes what is dead, spiritually dead, and brings life to it. And I reckon for many of us in the room who are Christians, we've probably had seasons of our life where we've really wrestled with this, where we've wondered, am I born again? Do I have the Holy Spirit in me? And it could be for a bunch of reasons. When I was in late high school, I had a few people in my life involved in some Pentecostal churches, and they told me that unless I spoke in tongues, I didn't really have the Spirit of God living in me. That was confusing. They were wrong, but it was confusing. Maybe you've had seasons in your life where you've struggled with sin that just won't go away and you wonder, am I, am I born again? Maybe you just lack feeling and vitality and you wonder, do I have God's spirit in me? Well, this series on salvation, if you're a Christian in the room, my hope is that you'll be in awe of what God has done to save you and what he's doing in you and that you'll live it out. And particularly today, my hope and prayer is that for those of us who are Christians, we'll have certainty on what it means to be born again so that we can have assurance that we are. Or if we're not, believe in Christ and be born again. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, my hope is that in hearing what God offers and what he's done in Christ, that you may be born again. My cards are on the table. We have a very clear agenda. We want all to come to know and trust Jesus. Here's why this matters. Our world is searching for transformation. And we look for it in all sorts of different ways. 
Have you noticed how many ads promise to make you new? And have you noticed how people look to things to make them new? Like a new haircut will make you new. Or a makeover will make you new. Or losing weight will make you new. Or a new job or toy or relationship or whatever will make us new. Now, while some of us could definitely do with a haircut, these things, they don't transform us. They don't change the heart. A haircut doesn't change the heart. Losing a few kilos won't change the heart. A new job doesn't change the heart. The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? We have a heart problem in this world, not a haircut makeover problem. But the biggest reason we need to hear what Jesus has to say this morning is he he says unless you're born again, you won't see the kingdom of God. That's a bold claim. Unless you're born again, you will not belong to God's people and you will not be with God's people now and into eternity. So here's the plan. Uh, I want us to do a little bit of context work on regeneration and our passage today. We're going to work our way through John 3. I don't know about you, but I've read John 3 loads of times and it's kind of confusing. Jesus says some strange things. And we want, I want to help you make sense of it. And then we're going to reflect on rege- regeneration and think through these things. What is it? Why do we need it? How does it happen? And how should it shape life? What is it? Why do we need it? How it happens? How does it shape life? Let's start with some context. So regeneration, like I mentioned before, it's the idea that God takes spiritually dead people and he makes them alive. And in some ways you could say that the story of the Bible goes like this. Generation, God creates. Degeneration, sin enters the world and goes bad. Regeneration, God takes what is dead and makes it alive. And just as God created new life in Genesis and breathed new life into this pile of dust that was man, so too in regeneration, God's spirit breathes new life into spiritually dead people. And in the scheme of the Bible, this idea of regeneration, it's meant to be a glimpse of the new creation that's to come. It's it's like a breaking in of heaven into the created order. That God has started his work of making all things new through his work of the Spirit in the lives of those who trust Jesus. It's the start of what God will complete at the end. Now, here's the challenging thing. The Bible uses a heap of different terms to refer to the same thing. So in John 3, Jesus will talk about being born again. It's quite a graphic image. Peter uses the same term in 1 Peter. Titus talks about the washing of regeneration. Paul talks about being dead and being made alive. He talks about being raised with Christ in Colossians. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And all those different phrases, I think they're all really talking about the same act of God to make spiritually dead people alive. And so as we talk about being born again, as Jesus talks about being born again in John chapter 3, keep in the back of your mind, we could just as easily be talking about being made alive in Christ or being raised with Christ or being made new. The consistent New Testament emphasis is that God gives new life and that we receive it by faith. 
Now, as we come to John's gospel in John chapter 3, it's important to notice that this is not the first time John has talked about being born again. Flick back, if you've got a Bible, to John chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible and you have a phone, Google it, you'll find it. John chapter 1. In verse 12 and 13, this is what John says, But to all who did receive him, receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So he says, all those who trust in Jesus are adopted into God's family. And what's brought that about is that they're born from above. They're born of God. So he's already talked about this idea of the new birth. Now flick back with me to the end of chapter 2, start of chapter 3. Jesus has just been in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. He's caused quite a stir at the temple, he's knocked over tables and he's kicked people out. He said, this, this is supposed to be a house of prayer. You've turned it into a den of robbers. It's quite amazing. He sits there quietly, fashions a whip, and then goes about using it and kicking people out. Verse 23, we're told this. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So Jesus was performing signs, miracles, in John's Gospel, they're always called signs. They point to who he is. And people believe on the basis of the signs. That's important because John doesn't want you to believe on just the basis of the signs. He wants you to believe based on what Jesus says and who he is. Verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. That's how my Bible reads. Yours might say something different. It's exactly really the same word as people believing in Jesus. It sort of says Jesus didn't believe in people. He didn't reveal the fullness of who he was to people. Why? Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man. That chapter break is not all that helpful. You're supposed to start chapter 3 thinking there's a man And Jesus knows what's in him, and we should be slow to trust this man, Nicodemus. Faith based on signs is not what he's after. So let's make sense of chapter 3, these first 15 verses, and then we'll come to those questions. What is regeneration? Why we need it? How it happens? How it should change us? So we've got this man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. The Pharisees were a group of Jews. They were known as the separate ones, holy ones. Uh, Some commentators think Nicodemus would have been pretty happy with what he saw at the temple because the temple was the place predominantly ruled over by the Sadducees, a different group of Jews. The Pharisees were very concerned with obeying the law, so much so that they added all sorts of other laws to the law so you don't break the rules so that you don't break the rules so that you don't break the law. He's a ruler of the Jews. That means he's part of the Sanhedrin. He's high up. He's a big deal. And he comes to Jesus at night, which is strange. Is Nicodemus wanting a quiet conversation without the crowds? Maybe. Is Nicodemus embarrassed and doesn't want to be seen with Jesus? Maybe. Is he trying to be sneaky? Maybe. Does he not want to validate Jesus' ministry? Maybe. 
But this is what he says, Rabbi, we know, we Pharisees, we rulers of the Jews, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless that you do unless God is with him. Remember, he's not after faith based on signs, and it's clear that Nicodemus doesn't yet have it either way. But here's what Nicodemus is asking, because Jesus just, he just bursts in and says you, you cannot uh, enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And it seems a bit clunky. Like, what is Nicodemus doing? There's an implied question here. We think you're from God. We've seen the signs. The implied question is, who are you, Jesus? You've clearly got some power. Are you a prophet? Are you the Messiah? Now, despite the fact that Nicodemus is a Pharisee, he'd probably memorised at least the first five books of the Bible. That's impressive. He's a ruler of the Jews. We have to acknowledge he's very underqualified to assess Jesus. He's very underqualified to sit in judgment over Jesus. It's Jesus who is assessing him. Be like me trying to assess Tiger Woods' golf swing or Roger Federer's forehand. I don't have the skills, knowledge. Like Federer, he's up here. I played tennis when I was 10 for a year or two. And Jesus says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, amen, amen. That's truly. So when you say amen, you're saying, oh, that's true. I agree. And it's a solemn formula. He's saying, Nicodemus, listen carefully. I'm, I'm, I'm really serious right now. And he says, unless one is born again or born from above, that word can mean again or above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, for a Pharisee like Nicodemus, he thought the kingdom of God was the thing that happened at the end of the world. He thought the kingdom of God was the moment when Israel dominated over the entire globe, where God would bring all those dead to life and they would reign forever. That's what he thinks. And yet throughout the Gospels and throughout John's Gospel as well, we see that the kingdom of God is actually all about the coming of the king that the kingdom of God exists wherever there are those who accept his rule and submit to his lordship. If you're a Christian, you're part of the kingdom of God. You're under Jesus' rule. See, in Nicodemus's mind, if anyone is in, if anyone can have certainty that they're part of the kingdom of God, it's got to be him and his Jewish peers who are so good at being good. They're Pharisees. And Jesus just says to him, Nicodemus, you're here to assess me, but it's my assessment of you that matters, and you lack. Nicodemus, apart from being born again or born from above, same idea as we see in chapter 1, born of God, you will not be in the kingdom. Judgment and wrath await you. That's what Jesus is saying to this bloke. The unschooled rabbi just told the ruler of the Jews that he's not going to heaven. Feel the weight. And in verse 4, Nicodemus' reply is a bit odd. Nicodemus says to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? It's quite a colourful image, isn't it? Popping back inside and popping out again. I'm pretty sure the mums in the room would not appreciate that. Is Nicodemus just that thick? Does he think Jesus is being literal? I, I don't think so. Some people think he's saying, 
How can someone old change like that? Because we humans don't like change. But more likely, what he's saying to Jesus is, that sounds ridiculous to me. That sounds as ridiculous as a person who is old climbing back inside their mum and being born again. It's not that he misses the point and thinks Jesus is being literal. It's that he thinks Jesus is crazy. And so in verse 5, Jesus says, Truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. (sighs) Huh? Anyone else feel that? Born of water and the Spirit. Some people think water is natural birth and they think Jesus is referring to amniotic fluid. Again, very colourful conversation Jesus is having with Nicodemus. Uh, I don't think that's what's going on. To be born of water and the Spirit, I think, is the same thing as being born again. It's the same thing that later where he says Spirit gives birth to Spirit. And the reason I think this is because later Jesus is going to say to Nicodemus, you're Israel's teacher and you don't get this. Jesus is referring to an Old Testament passage that talks exactly of being born of water and spirit. Feel free to flick back to Ezekiel chapter 36 if you want. If you don't want, that's okay. Let me read this to you. This is a great promise from the Old Testament that God makes to his people. And so from verse 24, God says to his people who are in exile, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That makes sense of it, doesn't it? See, what Jesus is saying is that if a person is to enter the kingdom of God, they need God to wash them clean and they need God to give them a new heart. We need God to give us a new heart. Nicodemus needs the hard heart gone, the heart bent on sin. The heart that rebels against God needs to be changed. Disobedience is what characterized Israel and God promises that he's going to undo it. So what does it mean to be born of water and spirit? It means to be born again. It means to be washed clean and given a new heart. Verse 6, he's really just emphasising the same thing. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Humans give birth to humans. But spirit, that's which born of the spirit, the Holy Spirit gives birth to new humans. He tells Nicodemus not to marvel. Don't be surprised. Don't say, how can a man go into his mother again and be born a second time? And then verse 8 The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, before you pull out your Bureau of Meteorology app and say, I can tell you exactly where the wind comes and where it's going, remember this is the ancient world. They didn't have meteorologists and radar and all those kinds of things. Jesus is saying, just as you look at the world and you hear the sound of the wind and you see it move the trees, but you don't really know where it's come from and you don't really know where it will end up, 
So it is with all those born of the Spirit. What is he saying to Nicodemus? Some people think this verse is saying the Holy Spirit does whatever he wants. And that would be theologically true. But he doesn't say so it is with the Holy Spirit. He says so it is with all those who are born of the Spirit. What's he saying to Nicodemus? He's saying you really don't get it. You see something. But you really don't get the point. You really don't understand what God wants to do in people's hearts and lives. You really don't get the need to be totally transformed and made new. Now Nicodemus gets his last words in verse 9. How can these things be? (laughs) He's confused. And really Jesus rebukes him. Are you the teacher of Israel? You don't understand these things? Like, surely you get Ezekiel, Nicodemus. That's what Jesus is saying. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Who is we and our? Because it's only been Jesus speaking. It's probably not the disciples, because I'm pretty sure they're just sitting there going, huh? I think they're probably just as confused. Could be the royal we that Jesus is talking about him and his father. My... I think the most compelling argument I've read is that Nicodemus comes and says, we know you are a teacher from God. And Jesus says, well, we speak of what we know, Nicodemus. I think he's turning it back on him. And when he says, you do not receive our testimony, I'm speaking of earthly things. Those earthly things are the new birth. That's what he's talking about. He didn't just do a class on how to bake a good sourdough. He's not doing a lesson on the weather. Those aren't the earthly things. The earthly things are the fact that God makes people new. And the point is, Nicodemus, if you won't even listen to me about the new birth, why on earth should I speak to you about the kingdom? Why would you listen to me about what heaven and eternity is going to be like if you won't even listen to me now when I say you need to be born again? Verse 13, Jesus says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. That's confusing. And the translation of this verse is a bit odd. That except for, could, it's probably better translated but only. The point that Jesus is saying, I'm the one with authority to speak about heavenly things. And in verse 14 and 15, the passage moves to an Old Testament story that's quite odd. Look at verse 14 with me. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Know that story? It's from Numbers. Numbers chapter 21. The people grumble and complain at God. And God sends fiery serpents among them. And they bite the people. And the people cry out to God. And Moses is commanded to make a bronze serpent high up on a pole. And the people look at the serpent on the pole, lift it up. And as they look at the object of the curse, the snake, they are saved from the curse, the snake. It's quite quite a random thing that Jesus, in some ways you think, well, that's probably not where my mind would go, Numbers 21 in the middle of this conversation. But here's what Jesus is saying. Just as Israel looked at the snake to be healed from the snake, so too the Son of Man must be lifted up so that all who look to him will be healed but not of snake bites. 
Look at it, verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Israel looked at a snake on a pole to be cured of snake bites. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, the Son of Man is going to be lifted up on a pole so that all who look to the dying man will be rescued from death and have eternal life. Jesus is saying, I'm the greater bronze serpent. Later in the Old Testament, the Israelites thought that the bronze serpent was somehow magical and it got destroyed by Hezekiah. But Jesus is the Son of Man lifted up, crucified, so that all who look to him and believe on him will be saved from death and given life eternal. Being born again is to receive life, life eternal that starts now and goes forever. So let's try and sum this up for a second. So what's the new birth? Why do we need it? The new birth is a work of God to give new life, and without it, you're not saved. I don't remember being born. I'm sure my mum does. I'm also very confident I didn't contribute anything. I certainly didn't go, it's getting a bit tight in here. I think I might pop out and see what's outside. I didn't do the work. Mum did. I was passive. So it is with the new birth. Now, why do we need it? I mean, all of us know John 3.16. It's the very next verse in the passage. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We often don't keep reading. Verse 17 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. We like that. But in order that the world might be saved through him. That's nice. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. He's not saying there's no hope for them. He's saying that all of us are born under condemnation. Why? Verse 19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. Why do we need to be born again? Because naturally, all of us are born loving darkness. We've already sung it, haven't we? I was in darkness all of my life. I never knew the day from the night, but spirit, you made me see. Blind people don't decide to see. Dead people don't decide to live. In Ephesians 2, it says, We were dead in our sins and transgressions in which we walked. We willingly participated in our deadness and we loved it. And we didn't suddenly decide, I think I might be alive now. God made us alive. That's what it says in Ephesians 2. Because of his great mercy and love. No one has to teach a kid to be selfish. No one has to teach a kid to lie or to bite Some of us learn to be good simply because we love the approval of others or we learn that it goes bad for us when we're bad. But all of us are born sinners. It is our natural propensity. And the Bible says you and I need to be born again, washed and made new because apart from God's work to breathe life into dead people, we are without hope. How is a person born again? God does it. We're passive. But verse 15 says that Christ's death leads to new birth. 
Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That is, eternal life is received by faith. We put our trust in the crucified King. That's what we're called to do, to believe. We looked at this a little bit last week. Faith comes through hearing the proclaimed gospel, the good news of Jesus. That's how faith comes. Which comes first? That's the question that a lot of people ask. Do I get new life and then believe, or does God give me new life because I have faith? I think that the common answer in the Bible over and over again, is that God gives new life first. Let me show you. In Ephesians 2, it says you were dead, but God, in verse 5, made us alive. In 1 Peter 3, sorry, 1 Peter 1 and 3, it it talks about God causing us to be born again. We, We didn't cause us to be born again. God caused us to be born again. Let me read Titus. But when the goodness, sorry, let me go to Titus chapter 3, verse 3. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Verse 4 doesn't say, but when we got ourselves together. Verse 4 says, but when the goodness and loving kindness. Ever heard the word philanthropy? Loving people, that's the word here. Loving kindness of God, our Saviour, appeared. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. How? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Colossians 2.13 says, You were dead in your trespasses, but God made alive together with Christ, made us alive together with Christ. So God's the one who starts this off. None of us will stand before God and say, I chose good. None of us will stand before God and say, God made me new because he knew of all the potential in me. None of us will stand before God and say, God made me new because he looked into the future and thought, oh, wow, they could be something. No, it's his mercy, it's his kindness, his grace. We were just dead. So Christ's death and resurrection is proclaimed and God makes dead, unreceptive hearts alive and he produces faith in Christ. And yet... Before you write everything off that I've said is crazy, yet at the same time, the call on all is to believe. Jesus says we need an Ezekiel-style renewal and transformation. We need to be made new. We need new hearts. He says you must be born again. But then look at verse 15. He also says, Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Verse 16, for God so loved the world, everyone, that he gave his son. For who? For everyone. So that whoever believes, whoever, whoever believes may have eternal life. See, Jesus won't allow Nicodemus or us to dodge our responsibility. We love darkness and it's wrong. 
We trust our own goodness. That's what Nicodemus does, and so do so many humans. So many Australians. They think, I'm a good person. I'll be right. I'm going to try and improve myself as best as I can throughout my life. That's my pursuit, and that will be good enough for God. Jesus says, no, 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 you, need, you don't need to try harder. You need to be transformed. We need to put our trust in Jesus, his death and resurrection. Jesus calls for a response. He doesn't say sit there, be passive, and wait until you're born again. He says you need to be born again. Believe in me. Believe in my death and resurrection. See, God always saves by means. And we see throughout the scriptures that as the gospel is proclaimed, as the good news of Jesus' life, death and resurrection is, is proclaimed, the Holy Spirit grabs hold of the word of God and takes dead hearts and raises them to life. We receive his love and life by faith rather than by works. So here's the last question. How should it shape life now? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want you to hear clearly, God wants to make you new. He wants to give you new life. And if you know that you're in need of a new life, eternal life, transformation that isn't the result of a haircut or a new car, but being thoroughly changed by an encounter with God, God actually offers it to you right now. He says, believe in my son. Believe in his death. Look to the, to the dead, dying man on the cross that you might be rescued from death, just as the Israelites looked at the snake to be rescued from the snakes. Ask for his forgiveness and set your hope on Jesus. Trust him. If you're not a believer here today, I'm convinced God wants you here to hear this, to hear of his love for you, To hear of Jesus, even before he goes to the cross, saying, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to be raised up so that all who look to me and believe will have life forever. It's amazing. The Bible says he'll make you new. You might wonder, what does that experience feel like? What is that like? I think if we surveyed the room, we'd discover it's different for all of us. Some of us have had experiences where we woke up one day and we knew we were dead in it. Well, we didn't know we were dead in our sins, but afterwards we realised we were dead in our sins. And that day something, something changed in our hearts and we've never been the same again. Some of us have had experiences that are more like a very long labour. We can't point to the moment we were born again. We don't know. We know that God changed us over a long period of time. But what we've noticed, all of us, is that those who are born again have a desire to repent of sin. They have a desire to obey God that's motivated less by fear, he'll get me. If I do this, God will hurt me. And more by love, if I do this, it will hurt him who died for me. And interestingly, we have a greater awareness of our sin. You'd think that as you grow in your Christian life, there'd be less sin, and there is. But one of the interesting things that happens is as you grow in your Christian life, you actually become more aware of how sinful you really are. 
It's why the gospel gets more and more precious the older you get. Because you start to realise, gosh, I'm worse than I ever thought. And you do that every five years or every year or every two weeks or every two days for some of us. You do that over a long period of time, you start to realise, gosh, his grace is bigger than I realised. If you're a Christian here today, it might sound like the Christian life is one of spiritual ecstasy. You might be sitting here thinking everyone else is on a spiritual high all the time. They're just reveling in the new life that they have in Christ, but I'm actually struggling. It's very hard to be honest about that when you think everyone else has everything together only all of the time. Maybe you feel a bit dead or dry. Maybe you wonder, am I born again? Can I encourage you, go back to the basics. Have I repented of sin? Have I trusted in Jesus? Trusted him as saviour and Lord. You know the Bible says no one can call Jesus as Lord and mean it from the heart apart from the spirit of God. Sometimes we get caught up in the quality of our faith. Do I have enough faith? as if you can measure it like flour. But the reality is, for the Christian, it's not so much about the quantity of faith, however you quantify that, but about the object of your faith. The smallest amount of faith in Christ is far more powerful than the biggest amount of faith I could have in myself. One will save and one will not, and it's the object that matters most. Go back to the basics and let feelings flow out from truth. I promise you if you feel spiritually dry and you wonder whether you're born again and you don't press into God's word and into God's people, into relationship with God, nothing will change. Just like a relationship that's struggling, if you give, I don't know, a two-year silent treatment to your wife, you won't have much of a marriage. Probably won't have a wife. (laughs) Press in. Remember that regeneration is water and spirit. It's cleansed of sin and forgiven. It's new life. It's the spirit in you. And beware of mistaking it for sanctification. Sanctification, which we're going to look at after Easter, it's our gradual growing in righteousness. Some of us might be tempted to think that if you're born again, you're suddenly perfect. Jesus doesn't say that. Regeneration doesn't make you suddenly perfect. Rather, it softens your heart to see imperfection so that you'll gladly repent. It allows you to see yourself more clearly. And the danger is that we fix our eyes on ourselves. But the Bible doesn't tell you to do that. It tells you to examine yourself at the end of 2 Corinthians. But it tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, to look to him to be forgiven and grow in our faith. If you're a Christian, you should marvel You should sing those words we sung before and be amazed. I was blind, but now I see. I was dead, but you made me alive. And if you get that, that must shape your life. It must shape how you drive your car, how you speak to your wife or your husband or your family or your friends or your kids. It must shape how you work. It must shape everything. You see, the overwhelming application of the new life in the Bible, of regeneration in the Bible, is that you are no longer to live like a dead person. If you've been made alive, if you've been brought from death to life, 
Don't live like you did when you were dead in sin. So Colossians 2, I read it before. It says, you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And in chapter 3, he says this. I'm going to read through chapter th- the first half of chapter 3 of Colossians because essentially it's applying the regeneration, the doctrine of regeneration to the Christian life. Let me read from verse 1 to to 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, that's regenerated, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are, are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He says, you've died when Christ died and you were raised to life when Christ is raised. And he says, set your desires on God. How are you going with that? Is your life marked by setting your desires on him? above everything else, above the new toy you want or the partner you want or the kids you want or the job you want or the life you want? Have you set your desires on him? And because we've been raised with Christ and are called to set our minds and hearts on things that are above, it doesn't mean that as you drive your car, imagine heaven and don't pay attention. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean don't pay your bills and do the dishes Don't wash your clothes and do the groceries. It's not saying that. Rather, it's saying set your mind on God, his kingdom, and how he calls you to live. And in in the next part of Colossians, he's going to say you need to put off things and put on things. You need to get rid of the old way of life and put on the new. Let me read. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things... On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living with them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. If you're a Christian, how how are you going in putting off the old? Is your life marked by malice and slander? By anger, sexual immorality, evil desires and covetousness? Do you get chewed up about what other people have? Are your words obscene? Do you lie? Paul says you've, you've been raised with Christ. So put off the dead ways. Put off the old ways. Can I encourage you, go home today and read that and ask God's spirit to show you where you need to repent. But he doesn't just say put off, he says put on. Look with me at verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 
Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Christian, is that you? Do you bear with one another? Or do you whinge about one another? Do you put on compassion or are you hard-hearted? Do you forgive? Do you get bitter? You see, what regeneration does is it allows you to love. It allows you to put off the old selfish self and forget about yourself because God has made you new. Bit by bit, God's love changes your heart and your life. And you become a person that's thankful rather than a person that's always whinging about what you don't have. What do you need to put on? In regeneration, God makes dead people alive. His spirit breathes new life into people. Jesus' death and resurrection empowers this. And he calls us to believe, to trust him. If you're like me and sometimes you just find it hard to take your eyes off yourself or faith feels like it's some out there unreachable thing, can I encourage you, ask God for it. Ask him. One of my favourite verses in the Bible is in Matthew where the man says, if you can heal him. Jesus is like, if? And he says, I believe. Help my unbelief. Ask God for faith. He's serious about making people new, so much so that he gave his son. He's serious about giving new life to people, so much so that the Son of Man was exalted on the cross, so that all who look to him and believe might have new life, new life that starts today and goes into eternity, new life that's not just quantity, lots, but quality, life in abundance, Life with God. And if you're a Christian, live like you're alive. Put off dead ways. Put on living. All of us, we're called to repent and trust in the one who is exalted on the cross. I don't think Nicodemus was born again that night. Mainly because Jesus says all who look to the Son exalted will be born again and he hadn't yet been exalted. But he started to change. Get to the end of chapter 7, and there's a debate. The Pharisees say to the temple guards, why didn't you bring Jesus to us? Don't you know that none of the Pharisees believe in him? And Nicodemus pipes up, gets a mention, says, aren't we supposed to give someone a fair trial? And they rebuke him, search the scriptures, see that no one from Galilee can be a prophet. Obviously, you didn't know the scriptures that well and read Isaiah 9. But you get to chapter 19, and Jesus has been exalted. And Nicodemus, with Joseph of Arimathea, brings 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe. Nicodemus was rich. (laughs) And he lovingly buried Jesus. I can't help but think that John 3 was ringing in his ears. My prayer, if you're not a believer, my prayer is that you'll believe, that you'll have new life, 
and that us Christians will live as raised people. I'm going to pray and then we'll share the Lord's Supper together. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you take what is dead and give life to it. Thank you it's not because there's anything in us in our deadness that draws us draws you to us but it's because you are so good. Thank you that Jesus willingly went to the cross that he was lifted up in the most brutal way so that all who believe in him might be washed and renewed and made new, offered new life. Thank you that as we believe in Jesus and look to him, the crucified king, death is destroyed and life is given. Please make dead people alive here and in Campbelltown and in our world. And please help those of us who are Christians to live like we're alive, to set our hearts on things that are above, to put off sin and to put on love. And we need your help. Thank you that you give it and by grace we can grow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.